Welcome to Beyond the Pink Cloud, the podcast where we talk about moving forward in our lives through recovery and navigating the world with grace, ease, and humor. We've got tools and strategies from the experts to help you live with less stress and increased ease. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. I have a great guest today, Jillian Teets. She has an amazing podcast called Sober Powered, where she breaks down complex scientific concepts around addiction and alcoholism and other fascinating topics around what's happening in our brains and our bodies that I think many of you will really get a lot out of her podcast, but also this episode today where we talk about you know her story, a little bit of my story, and, uh, and how addiction works in the brain. So I think you're going to love it. And we're coming up on Thanksgiving here in the United States, so I just want to wish everyone a really healthy and happy holiday. You know, be safe out there, take care of yourself and your loved ones. And if you can't be with your families on Thanksgiving, utilize what we do have, you know, which is Zoom, which is our own ability to be in our hearts, to practice things like metta meditation, where we practice a loving kindness meditation and send love to our families. I think that's always a beautiful practice. That's all I have for you this week. I'll keep this intro short. We are in the second week of Sober, Calm, and Wild, the four-week course. It's really, really fun, and I think it's going well. Everyone seems happy and engaged, so it's definitely a course I will revisit in 2021. If you'd like to participate next year, you can just keep an ear out, or I'll I'll create a wait list as well. So in the meantime, if you'd like to be part of the community, come hop in the Facebook group. And without further ado, we'll get rolling on the episode. Thank you for being here. Please like, please subscribe if you like the show, if you want to leave a review, or if you could tell one friend. All of those those little actions on your part really do help the, the show to grow and for more people to hear all of these amazing guests that come on and speak with me. So thank you. Have a wonderful, safe holiday. And please enjoy this fantastic episode with Jill. Hi, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. This is your host, Dr. Alice Kirby. With me today, I'm really thrilled to have a wonderful guest who is also a podcast host, Ms. Jillian Teets. She is a sober scientist and is the host of the podcast Sober Powered, which I've been spreading far and wide to everyone, where she really takes some complex neuroscience and other scientific concepts around addiction and breaks them down into uh, very digestible bits. And it's fascinating information. So uh, thank you so much for being here today. Thank with you us. for thanks for that introduction. <laughs> Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, I am like very enthused to speak with you. I told you, and I think my listeners know I really love brain science and have it even on my website in my own bio is this little bit about how we got to dissect cross sections of brains in my PT program. And it was, this, <laughs> you know, huge highlight of my life to see the inside of the brain. So I really love what you're doing. And I think you're providing wonderful value to the sober community or to anyone who's really just wondering about their relationship with alcohol. Thank you. You're welcome. Could you tell us just a little bit about your own story? I know you recently just hit a a year sober. So, so many congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, that was, um, I guess about a week and a half ago. Um, so it feels weird to be a year sober. I'm not, I'm not thinking so much about the next milestone anymore. I'm just, I'm already at a year. So yeah. 
But do you feel more relaxed about it at all? Do you think, I don't know if you had like some anxiety or tension around coming up on the year. I did. I built it up in my head. Like I, I wanted everyone to throw a parade for me basically. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and that's okay. Yeah, it's fine. I thought that I was going to wake up that day and feel magically different. (laughs) So I was really thinking about it for a while, like probably six weeks out, I started really getting excited. Um, But for my story, so I didn't start drinking actually until I was 22. So now I'm 30. And that was for a few reasons. I was I was really bullied through all of middle and high school. So I never had friends. So I didn't have the opportunity to party. And I also saw some unhealthy drinking growing up. Um, And that all came together to make me just want to avoid it. So I went through all of college, not drinking at all. A lot of people think that's strange. And then when I went to graduate school, the culture for scientists is just drinking people will have alcohol on their desks the professors will party with the students at the school and I was making all these friends for the first time in my life and I wanted to be normal and cool so I started experimenting with um, a drink here and there and then the first time I really drank it was there was no off switch it was just a huge mess it was on a date too it was really embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) And then, um, yeah, and then it just slowly got worse and worse and worse. And by the time I was 23, I was a daily drinker. Um, 24, I started to try to moderate my drinking. And I would do that for another five years. And then I did a few challenges to try to like cure myself. Mm -hmm. And the biggest one was a 90 day sober challenge in the spring of 2019. And I thought if I took three months off, you know, my tolerance would be reset. I'd be cured. I could go back to drinking like normal people do. And I did for a bit, actually, for two months, I drank two glasses of wine on Saturday night. Didn't want any more than that. It wasn't even something I had to resist. And then I went on vacation And that's a special occasion. So I could drink however I wanted to. And as soon as I came home, I was right back to where I started before the challenge. And it just continued to escalate. Um, I was dealing with extreme anxiety that was keeping me up all night long, several nights a week. So I was incredibly sleep deprived. I was also suffering from suicidal thoughts. And then when it escalated again, to the point where I had initially challenged myself, that's when I accepted, I'm just not someone who can drink. And now I know if I take 50 years off, I maybe I'll moderate when I first go back to it, but the very first test, I'll instantly be back to 29 years old and blowing up my life. So um, that acceptance was really important for my success. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for, um, thanks for sharing all of that with us. And I mean, it's, it's such a similar story, or I guess the veins of it are very similar for so many of us. I, I was a a pretty huge, um, anxiety ridden insomniac as well when my drinking really got pretty bad. So I definitely relate to that. 
bit of, you know, not sleeping and then trying to medicate with anxiety or with alcohol to calm the anxiety and, and none of it worked at that point. And I'm curious about a few things, and I guess maybe I'll, I'll move this into one of the questions I have for you is, is knowing and accepting that you, you can't, that you're always probably going to come back to this extreme, you know, drinking pattern, or maybe extremes, not the, the way, but, you know, addictive style drinking pattern, as I know I will, if I drink again, it's just how my brain is. Um, could you talk a little bit about why the, the brain is that way for some people or what's happening in the brain that makes it that way for some people, but then, you know, not for others. I know your husband sounds like he's a normal drinker. My partner's the same. There's, you know, still beer in the fridge from like, you know, a month ago. Um, so I'm, I'm curious. And I think this is really helpful for people to understand as well, that not maybe not everyone is predisposed to drink alcoholically. Um, but for those of us that are like, what's actually happening in the brain. And I, I think this solidifies Then I'll actually let you answer the question, but I, I think this sort of solidifies some of that acceptance. That's why I, th I think it's so important to really understand like, Oh, like there's just a, a difference happening in my, my brain. Yeah. So when I first quit and had that acceptance, I, felt compelled to learn why I am different from normal people, like my husband, who's a completely normal drinker. And so I've just been reading basically every day for the past year. And um, there's a lot of things that have to align for somebody. Um, a big factor is your childhood, if you've suffered any trauma, even your adult life, how you live your life, who you interact with can influence how your genes are regulated. So there are some genes, um, there's one that I love to talk about. It's so you can have different variants of genes. We don't all have exactly the same genes that work exactly the same way. And Sometimes if you suffer from something very specific in your childhood, like a specific trauma, then if you also have that gene, it can trigger really specific types of alcohol abuse, like antisocial alcoholism um, in women, because that's something women do that men usually do not do. And I just think it's so interesting. And the more that I've learned, the more complex it becomes and and things like what I've been thinking about lately is anxiety and anxiety has come back to things I've learned about endorphin levels and why does alcohol feel so amazing for me? And it doesn't feel that amazing for my husband. Like he'll have a drink and it'll be like, okay, yeah, that's nice. And I'll have a drink and my brain is like, oh my God, this is the best thing in the entire world. Let's have another one. So yeah, there's just so many things that align, so many different genes that can come together and put you at risk. Um, mental health conditions increase your risk. So there's all sorts of things and they have to come together in a specific way to create this. So I don't think it's easy for people to just develop a problem if you're not predisposed to it and you don't have trauma in your life because it sucks. Nobody wants to drink that way. It's miserable. Yeah. It's horrible. It takes a lot of energy to feel terrible all the time and hate yourself and not sleep. And so, yeah, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. And I like what you said about the genes. Um, and so 
I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly too, is that we could maybe a group of five people could all have the same gene that might lead to a predisposition for alcoholic drinking, but it, maybe it doesn't get switched on. And like three of those people, if they didn't go through some kind of childhood abuse or trauma, but for those who, who did, then the gene would become switched on and they would be the ones that developed an alcohol, alcoholic drinking. Yeah, so there's one specific gene that encodes for um, an enzyme. It's called just MAO is the abbreviation. And if you have this shorter variant, so the, the protein that it makes is shorter, so it doesn't work as well, and you also suffered childhood sexual abuse, it's highly likely that you will develop antisocial alcohol addiction, but say you unfortunately suffered child sexual abuse, but you do not have that short variant, then the chances are much less likely that you will be antisocial with your drinking or that you would even have a drinking problem. And the other way too, if you have that gene and you did not suffer childhood sexual abuse, maybe it'll never um, it'll never start being expressed in your body. So there's, there's ones um, for alcohol-induced aggression and, and there's different genes for happiness and anxiety. So there's so many different things and, and a lot of things have to align. And just your life experience, like even if you're predisposed and you grow up the most amazing home, your parents are superstar parents. They don't really drink around you. They teach you everything. They're just, they never make a mistake. You could grow up totally fine, even though you're completely predisposed to it in so many different ways. Um, yeah, I'm going on and on, but <laughs> no, I like it. And it does. It's, it's, it's shedding, um, a light for me on just how complex it is. Cause it's not really like, Oh, there's one switch in your brain. And then if it's flipped, you're an alcoholic. And if it's not, then you're not. Yeah. <laughs> And I think this, this, I like that we're having this conversation now as well. I listened to Gabor Mate's talk on um, addiction and trauma in the embodiment conference a couple of weeks ago. And, and he was talking about, and I, you know, I may say this wrong. So if anyone else listened to this and I'm, I'm misquoting it, then I apologize. What I took from that is he was saying that addiction isn't necessarily genetic, but that it really comes from trauma or pain. And I was like, well, is that true? I feel like there is genetic components, but I really like what you're saying because it's, th there's both, you know, there's the genetic components and there's potentially trauma or pain that can feed into someone developing a, an alcohol, you know, use disorder. Yeah. And it's not even just alcohol, um, stress and trauma and, and like if you're an adult and you are in an abusive relationship and you just have high constant levels of stress and pain, it can start to regulate certain genes that wouldn't normally be turned on and it can increase your risk for cancer. So it's not just that you would go, you know, drink and not have an off switch. It's a lot of different things can happen. Stress changes the body in so many different ways. Have you found in your research any similarities that really stand out either in the alcoholic population, and this may be kind of a repeat of the same question, but also in the, the population that doesn't seem to develop it? Are there any constants that you see through, through the research or is it all just incredibly dependent? Um, that's a hard question. I think it's very dependent 
Um, so what I've been thinking about lately is anxiety. And it's estimated that about one in five people will will self-medicate with alcohol. And, you know, that obviously leads to very bad things. But why do the other four people not do it? And so there are a lot of different factors. Um, genetics is probably like half. And then your life, who you hang out with is the other half. Like my brother is 100% normal. He He's the most responsible drinker that's like ever lived. He's so aware of having to drive and and just like being a good person and, and not wanting to feel terrible. Like he doesn't even like to get drunk and yeah. And he's, he's my brother. We have like very, very similar genetics and we grew up in the same home. So we had a very similar childhood. He was also bullied. So there's a lot. And somehow he, he like escaped it and I did not. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, is it a curse? Do you think it's a curse? <laughs> I, don't, I don't really think that way, but it's, it's just, it's wild. It, genetics in general, it just so much goes into making us even be able to like be here and be alive on the planet. Um, which for me, you know, is amazing to like have time to be in our bodies, but it is really, it's interesting to think of all these things that have to go into place. And when we, when we, like know that we can't ever drink normally again. Is there, I'm trying to think of how I want to word this question without it just being the same thing that I keep asking you. <laughs> uh, like I'm, I'm wondering if there's any like structural or fundamental, like actual changes to the brain that like guarantee that you won't, um, you won't ever be able to drink normally again. Is it just the fact that everything has been sort of switched on or dialed in, or is there any actual sort of structural changes of the brain tissue? Yeah. So the brain gets smaller, um, but also neurons and specific areas of the brain will have their shape changed. And then when they have a different shape, it's harder for them to do their job, which is talking to other neurons and and like spreading whatever message they're trying to send. So alcohol will cause altered shape. Um, you can also have a dysfunction in certain pathways in your brain, like how I think my favorite one, because I tried to moderate for so long. So I love talking about how much I yeah. hate moderation. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk um, about moderation. Cause I love this. This Yeah. About it. <laughs> so yeah, so there's a pathway in your brain that allows the rational decision-making part of you to communicate with your reward center. So if, I don't know, my brother was at a party and he was drinking and his boss was there or um, his girlfriend's parents were there and he would think like, oh, I shouldn't you know, I shouldn't go crazy. I should just have like two drinks and then switch to water. And he could do that. And his brain would actually send that message along. And for someone like me, definitely. And maybe you, um, definitely. we can have that thought. <laughs> we have that thought and we're aware of that thought. Like, oh, I have to drive tonight. Or, um, you know, this is my husband's company party. Like, I don't want to embarrass him. We have those thoughts and those feelings in the moment, but our brain doesn't 
accurately send that message because we have a dysfunction in the, in the connection between those two parts of the brain. So the reward center is just like going crazy, doing its thing and no one's telling it to stop. And that's why I think that someone like me doesn't have an off switch. I call it like the, the voice in your head that tells you to stop. And that's what I always used to say to my husband when I was young, like mid twenties, I would say, I just don't have that voice that other people have that, that tells me that I should stop doing this. And I thought like I could get that voice, but it's just not something that you can get if you don't have it. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I like when you, when you talked about in the episode, you mentioned that those, um, like those axons that communicate from the, the, um, what is it? The me- the medial prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. Is that Good it? memory over to the government. I know. I told you, I love the brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you mentioned that they, they just don't have the same kind of plasticity, right? So they can't like change and grow, um, to adapt to that, those signals of, Hey, this isn't a good idea. Um, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we have neurons, that are specific to certain parts of the brain, um, like a prefrontal cortex neuron, and they just hang out there and talk to the other neurons that are there. But then there are other neurons called pyramidal um, pyramidal cells, and they're they're much longer, and they can extend into other parts of the brain and communicate with neurons over there. So that's that pathway that has the dysfunction. So neuroplasticity is like your brain being able to like adapt on the fly to what's going on in front of you. And you will see like, I have to drive tonight. (laughs) I have to drive 30 minutes home. And your brain would be like, oh, okay, let's send this message. Like, let's chill. And if your brain can't like adapt to what's going on, it's not going to send the message to stop. So you just keep right on. Yep. Just keep one more, one more, yeah, one more forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God. And you're right. It does take a ton of energy to be like horribly miserable and obsessed with alcohol. Um, yeah. So I hope any, for anyone who's listening, if you are in a place where you're struggling, I'm really glad you're here and, uh, please reach out. There's lots of wonderful resources and women's only communities. If I work primarily with women, so I assume most of my listeners are women, but if you're a man, there's stuff for men too. <laughs> um, so, you know, take heart and keep listening. And I'm curious, I hear a lot from people who, um, I actually worked with a client the other day who mentioned something like this, where they, they go into a period of sobriety. Um, but then they start noticing that other addictions start to come up. Maybe it's like an eating disorder addiction or even, um, like addiction to sugar can get really out of hand for people or sex or shopping or what have you. Is this because the, um, like the reward pathway is just already, re like pre wired for addiction, or could you speak to like transfer addictions or ways that we could potentially avoid them if there's anything that we can do? Yeah. So your reward center is used to feeling the specific feeling that it likes to feel. So that's why, um, like if I enjoy alcohol, I'm probably not going to go for uppers because it's doing something different, but Things like sugar, I think the the most common misconception is alcohol has a lot of sugar in it. So, you know, you're eliminating that. 
So naturally you would crave sugar and, and like, that's kind of true, but if you're just drinking, you know, straight vodka, then it doesn't really explain why you would all of a sudden want all the sugar. And it's, um, sugar is just super addictive and it, it hits the, the same areas of the brain that alcohol does. And I was someone who struggled with um, disordered eating behaviors before I started drinking. And I actually replaced those behaviors with drinking. Um, so I was super mindful of that when I stopped drinking. And that's another thing that's very common for, especially for women to have both of those things going on either together or um, at different points of their lives. But for me, I think what helped is first that acceptance, just recognizing that, you know, I just can't do this ever. And the other thing that I think is people are always searching for a reward or how can I, you know, relax after work or, or what can I reward myself with now after, you know, the work week is over now that I don't drink and you can never reward yourself with anything positive that's going to feel as good as drinking an entire bottle of wine felt because it feels way better for us than it feels for regular people. And so the only thing that's going to make you feel that rewarded is, you know, sugar or going crazy on Amazon. And, and I think that's why people will switch because they're looking for the same type of high. And what I've been very mindful of is to, is to create a life that I don't feel that I need to reward myself for living. Um, so like work has just been ridiculous for me the past three weeks and I just don't have that feeling, um, where old me before I started drinking would probably reward myself with eating an entire pizza or, and then like a pint of Ben and Jerry's. And that was like, I deserved that. But now I know I deserve to feel good and doing things that, I don't know, make me feel a high are not good for me. So it's just like a mindset thing, really. And it's being, it's just total awareness that it's a possibility and lots of therapy. Yeah, I agree with, um, I think with all of that, like having the awareness and the mindset and giving yourself really time to to like notice these things when they happen and make a little change. And then maybe you notice it a little bit sooner and you can you have more of a, a power of choice returned to you instead of it just being such an automatic behavior of like, I don't feel good. I had a stressful day. Like, let me have the cookies or the ice cream or reaching for something that's an external thing to make us feel better. Um, I think it's like trying to slow that down the moment in between the, like the wanting it and the, the actually reaching for it, like creating more space in between those moments. I've been working with that lately and I think it's, it's pretty helpful. Yeah. And then it allows you to be able to have the pizza or, you know, whatever sugar and there's no guilt, there's no shame. I think that's the worst part about it. And that's what really creates the next problem is whatever you're doing to replace alcohol is going to cause some amount of shame because alcohol did. And now you are in the shame spiral and it makes you do it more and it makes you hate yourself. And then you're right back in the same spot. And food 
in my opinion, is like so much worse to struggle with than alcohol because alcohol, you have like a few hours of, you know, just like everything's fantastic. Life is great. And then the next like 24 might be horrible, but for food, it's so quick. It's just so quick. And then after you are just left with all the shame and then Mm -hmm. it's easy to just, to just do it again and do it multiple times, like in the same evening where alcohol, it's like, it's longer and more drawn out. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense. It does make sense. And I think that's a good point. Um, yeah, I think it's really valid. I'm curious in your own recovery. I know you mentioned lots of, um, therapy. I'm curious if you found any type of therapy in particular, um, especially helpful to whatever extent you're comfortable talking about your own journey. And then just what other kinds of sober support did you find helpful for you in, in, you know, making the, the change and now being with us today, a year sober and spreading all this wonderful education and information. Yeah. So my husband was super supportive. When I quit, we would both drink wine together and wine was my thing. And wine is also his favorite. And I, I didn't really like make it a discussion. I just kind of told him, I, I don't want you to drink wine around me ever. I said the word ever like for the rest of your life. And good for you though. Yeah. And, you know, I'm reevaluating that after a year, I might try to experiment with him drinking wine in front of me, like at a restaurant that doesn't have like fancy wine that they like the 99 or something. Um, (laughs) So I'm not super jealous. I know it's not like the best wine. Um, But yeah, he has been so supportive of everything that I need. He listens to me talk about like sober stuff for hours and hours and hours. And just the sober community, like meeting people like you has been so helpful for me because it, I thought I was so abnormal and I thought something was wrong with me and that I was bad and all these things. And then I met people who, when I shared a little bit of my 